Well, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty Father, would you do now what you have always done for your creation? Would you speak to us your word? Give us your word on the breath of your spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, when you got here this morning, you probably picked up one of these orders of service that Chrissy Koblenz puts together so masterfully each Sunday. And when you saw that little woven symbol at the top, that tri-pointed overlapping system of arcs, which I only learned this week is called a triquetra, when you saw that, I hope you knew what you were getting into this morning. It is, as you know, Trinity Sunday today, also known as We're about to do some theology Sunday, so I hope you came prepared. But before we get into the glories of the Trinity, and we will, I promise, I think we should start with a sobering confession, and that is this. In the experience of many Christians, myself included, the doctrine of the triune God, of the Trinity, can feel like a burden. It can feel like this heavy, impossibly shaped, unwieldy bundle that we know we as Christians are required to carry around, but we can never quite articulate why. We know that if we drop it, or even if we hold it incorrectly, that makes us heretics, and we don't particularly want to be heretics. So we keep lugging it around, and then once or twice a year on a day like, I don't know, Trinity Sunday, we try to remind ourselves that it's a very important doctrine so that we you know, encourage ourselves to keep carrying the burden around. And in preparing this sermon for this day, I was confronted and rather disheartened, actually, at my own inability to articulate, to put into words why the knowledge of the triune God is actually good news. I found myself racking my brain and testing my heart, and I couldn't readily articulate why the knowledge that we, ha- we serve a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, why is that the gospel? Why is that good news? Every Christian in this sanctuary and through all of history has been baptized in the triune name as we heard Jesus command, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And just a side note here, if you weren't baptized in the triune name, we should talk ASAP. But we Christians say it all the time, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We preach in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We bless and receive blessings in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet, suddenly when I'm called upon to explain how or why the nature of God as Trinity is good news, I find myself at a loss. And so that became my goal for this sermon, and that's my goal this morning, to remind you Christians, you who have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, why the Trinity is not a burden, but is the gospel. Because the nature of God, who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is good news. It is the good news. If I had to say it, in a single sentence, why the nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is good news, why the Trinity is the gospel, it would be this. The nature of God reveals and assures the nature of reality. 
The nature of God reveals and assures the nature of reality. If that's a little too abstract, try it this way. The way that God is reveals the way the world truly is and will be. The way that God is reveals the way the world is and will be. Because whoever made this reality, whoever made the world and everything in it, gets the authority to say what that world should be for and what it's like. If someone is actually sovereign over reality, and we believe there is someone sovereign over reality, truly in control, they get to dictate and determine the nature of that reality. So if we want to know what this world is, what this reality is, what it actually is and what it's about, we need to know the nature of the one who made it. Now, before we get into the details of the Trinitarian nature, I'd like to tell two stories. They're not true stories. They're not Christian stories. They're false stories. And it's always a risk to deliberately say something false from the pulpit because I get it. You know, your attention sort of waxes and wanes, and, you know, you might tune in suddenly for me to hear me saying, like, and, when, and since Baal is God, I, I'm not saying that Baal is God, right? <laughs> but I'm going to tell two untrue stories and I'm going to do that because the hope is they will give a contrast that will help us hear the true story more clearly. So here's the first story. And just full disclosure, I'm stealing the way this is told from a great book by a, by a theologian named Abigail Favalli. And we should talk about her book sometime. But this is the story. In the beginning, there was water. Two kinds of water. There was uh, the, the turbulent feminine sea by the name of Tiamat. And there was the, the, the more calm, masculine river, whose name doesn't particularly matter. So there was salt water and fresh water, and where these two waters met, there was a teeming pool. And this pool is where the gods came from. The gods arose, all kinds of gods. And then there arose one particular god by the name of Marduk. And he arises as the most powerful of the gods. And he has this spirit, this conquering spirit, this expansive spirit. And he decides this watery world of his origin isn't enough for him. And so he gathers an army of monsters. And he makes war against his mother, Tiamat. And he wins. And he kills her. And then he takes her body. And, he, and with her flesh, he forms the dome of the heavens and the sweep of the earth. And then Marduk kills another god and takes his blood, and with that blood he makes a multitude of tiny slaves whose sole purpose is to serve the gods. And these slaves are the first humans. This story is called the Enuma Elish. It's also known as the Babylonian creation myth. This would have been sort of the competing story to Genesis 1 in the ancient Near East. And in this story of the origin of reality, the creation of the world is kind of an afterthought. It comes after a, a prior chaos and violence that's sort of more primordial. Remember the principle that I started with now. The nature of God reveals and assures the nature of reality. So if the Enuma Elish was your story about the origin of the world and the nature of the gods, how would you think the world is? You'd probably say it looks like conflict and violence and brutal servitude. If Marduk is God, then humanity may be intended by God, but only as slaves, only as worthless servants whose existence is valuable only insofar as it makes God's life more pleasant or pleasurable. That's story one. Here's story two, also untrue. In the beginning, there was energy, something 
basically unknowable but certainly dramatic happened and this inconceivably dense pocket of energy exploded with an incalculable force so powerful that it created matter and time, stuff and sequence. And then a long, long time passes, so long that the words that we make up to describe it don't really mean anything. And all that stuff, according to those forces, starts to fit randomly in different shapes and arrangements. And eventually that stuff happens to form into stars and planets and systems. And again, this is more than you could count. And eventually one of those planets just happens to accidentally produce other arrangements of stuff. But that stuff can somehow reproduce itself. And then by another sort of directionless process over a long enough time, all kinds of stuff species cover the face of the earth. And then more time. And one of those species not only finds itself able to reproduce, but also to think and to choose. This random arrangement of matter seems to recognize itself. It can put names to its desires and put plans into motion to acquire those desires. This story is the creation myth of our present materialist age. And this story says that there's been a series of fundamentally meaningless accidents, things that just happened. And somehow or another, they just happened to produce us, these beings who are capable of consciousness. And behind this process that arrives at us, there was no intention, there was no intelligence, there certainly wasn't a person. And so it looks like in this story that there's no God. But in practice, this story does have a God. It's the one telling the story. It's us, the humans. Though we exist without ever having been intended, we accidentally have become the beings in the universe capable of self-aware consciousness. And so we, with that consciousness, now have the freedom or the burden or the terror, depending on your perspective, to give reality its meaning. And people are going to take this burden different ways. Some are going to say, if there's no God, then anything and everything is permissible. You can do whatever you want. The only thing that can stop you doing what you want is somebody else who doesn't want you to do that, who has more power than you. So the nature of reality, kind of similar to the story of Marduk, is the nature of wills trying to gain power, trying to assert what they want in the world. And other people think that sounds kind of harsh, but basically agree with it, so they're going to make it sound nicer. They're going to say things like, from stardust you came, and to stardust you shall return. And it sounds nice, but they're kind of banking on the fact that you're not going to think too hard about stardust and the fact that stardust is absolutely meaningless and empty and void, right? These stories that we tell about the origins of reality reveal what cultures think about the nature of God and the nature of the world. So for the Babylonian man or woman, the nature of reality is power. It's chaos and fear and pain and servitude unless you have power. And so the best you can hope for in this life is to gain power and maybe gain uh, the, the approval or the pleasure of the gods whom you serve, and maybe they'll make your life slightly easier. It's not too different, I'm afraid, from how some people and even some Christians think about the true God. But for the materialist, God's absence means that I am the author of my accidental life. And I can use it or I can abuse it however I see fit, whether that's seeking power or pleasure or some kind of sentimental obliviousness. And I think if we're honest, both of these stories make sense. If your starting place for thinking about reality is your own observation 
of a fallen world. Because this fallen world is filled with violence and slavery and selfish ambition. And we fallen creatures do have all kinds of desires. We want things and we get mad or we get sad when those desires are unfulfilled. Life is pain, princess, as the dread pirate Robert says. And anyone who tells you differently is selling something. So if violence and desire and the will to power is what we see all around us in our day-to-day life, it might make sense, a kind of sense at least, to assume that that's the nature of God too, that God must be some kind of Marduk or an unfeeling set of impersonal forces. But this misses something crucial. Both of these stories miss something essential. I said my thesis was this, the nature of God reveals and assures the nature of reality. I didn't say yet, but I'm saying now, it has to work in that order. It doesn't work the other way. You can't go from looking at the nature of reality and then conclude, oh, that must be the nature of God. You need to know the nature of God if you're going to know the nature of reality. Because we're really bad at understanding the nature of reality. Our minds are darkened by sin, And so we cannot see and we cannot understand things as they truly are. We're deceived and we're remarkably fickle. I think there's a ready example that all of us will relate to, right? For how many of us does it take approximately one bad day, just one bad afternoon, one bad cup of coffee that you really wanted to be a good cup of coffee to convince you that reality is just hostile, that life is utterly meaningless and drudgery and toil, or, or the opposite, right? Doesn't it take just one good day, one beautiful morning, one particularly delicious cheeseburger to convince you life is just grand, isn't it? We're not the most reliable interpreters of reality. So if we can't t- determine reality, how, how could we determine the nature of God by our own lights? If we have any chance of understanding the nature of God, we need God to tell us. We need God to reveal himself to us. And there's there's all sorts of things that we should know about God just from looking at creation, right? Romans 1 exists. For what can be known about God is plain. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the beginning of the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That's what Romans 1 says. So we can and we should see just from looking around that there is an eternally powerful and divine God who made all of this. He's left hints. He's left traces of his nature all over creation, but we can only know that. We can only know that there's a God. We can't know who that God is. We can't know his nature. We can't know his character just from looking around. But God does not despise to condescend and talk to us. God wants us to know who he is, and so he baby talks us, right? He takes our small minds and his infinite mind, and he makes himself intelligible. He speaks to us, and he baby talks us for the same reason that we baby talk our babies, because we want them to know us, and we want to tell them that we love them, and we want them to know us and to love us, so God does the same thing. He makes himself known. He reveals himself to us. Not only that he exists, but who he is and what he's like, and God does this most perfectly, most 
clearly by sending the Son. The Son is the one who reveals the nature of God to us. The Father sends the Son to become incarnate among us. And Hebrew says that that Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of His being. The Son is what God is in His entirety. And that same Son also says that He will send the Spirit to testify to Him, to bear witness to the work that He has done. So the Spirit shows us the Son, and the Son reveals and reconciles us to the Father. So God makes Himself known, not only that He exists, but that He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. And because we know that, because God has spoken to us and revealed who He is, that then prepares us to actually hear the actual creation story and to hear it truly, the one that goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we know when we hear that, in the beginning, God. The God there is not some violent psychopath who needs slaves. And he's not some unfeeling, impersonal law or set of forces or energies. The God who created the heavens and the earth is the Father. And he creates by his Son, by his Word. He speaks his Word. The Word who John says was in the beginning with God and was God. And that Word he speaks by the breath of the Spirit, the Spirit who hovers over the face of the waters, who gives life and breath to we human creatures. So before there was an in the beginning... There was God, and that God always was and ever will exist as a communion of persons, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father who eternally begets the Son, the Son eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit who proceeds from their love. Each of those persons is fully God, and because each person is fully God, that means they are perfectly true, perfectly delightful, perfectly beautiful, perfectly good, perfectly perfect. It's God. Each person is God, and so when God beholds God, He delights in God. That is to say, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From You know, it, uh, you, you, almost, this is going to happen at some point. I was going to hit the limits of my language. Uh, you can't put it into words, but eternally they have delighted in one another. They have lived in this perfect relationship of delight and love and self-giving. And that's what we mean when we say that God is love. Like 1 John 4, 8 says, if, if there was one God, but he was just a monad, if there was just one person, how could it be true that God is love? To love, you need a lover and a beloved. So if God was a single person, he could not be love because then he would need us. He would need creation to be God. And that makes you not God if you need something else. Love requires a beloved. God does not need us. God is self-sufficient in his love. He's not like Marduk. He doesn't need anything. God is love because the Father has ever begotten and ever loved the Son. That's what Jesus says in John 17, 24. Father, you've loved me before the foundation of the world. And the Son, eternally begotten, has always beheld and reflected the glory of the Father in love. I do as the Father commanded me, Jesus says, so that the world may know that I love the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And yet we can't stop there because God isn't a dyad either. He's not two persons. You know that 
You may have experienced how a lover and a beloved can be so infatuated with one another that everything else can fall away and you don't need, need it anymore, right? The young lovers who forget the world exists. If God were a dyad, were just father and son, you know, eternally infatuated with one another, there would be no need for creation. Well, there's no need for creation. Ah, limits. Uh, <laughs> there would be no creation. There'd be no reason for creation. The love would be eternally perfect and secure in this kind of eternal circle that, that needs no expansion. But that's not who God reveals himself to be. When the love between two persons is happy and healthy and secure, they rejoice to share it. Being perfectly loving, from all eternity, the Father and the Son have delighted to share their love and joy with and through the Spirit. We see the Father expressing His love for the Son through the Spirit, in the person of the Spirit, in Jesus' baptism. That's our great picture of this, right? Jesus is there to be baptized, and the Father does what? He sends His Spirit to rest upon His Son, and in sending the Spirit upon His Son, that is how He expresses, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This love of God, of the three-personed God, is not self-contained, it's not enclosed, it's expansive. God delights to expand his love, to include creation even in his love. The love of the triune God is so full and so perfect that he delights to share it, to make a world, to make creatures who can be invited into that love that he has enjoyed for all eternity as Father, Son, and Spirit. Only a triune God would freely choose to form all of this just to share in his love. This is where we fit in. This is where Genesis 1 fits in. The nature of God, remember, this is the principle. The nature of God reveals the nature of reality. And we've seen that the nature of God is the love of the Father and the Son of the Spirit. And that triune God has created us, has created you that he might include you in the divine love which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have enjoyed and will enjoy for all eternity. A love that is perfect and satisfied, but which also expands and creates new love to share in that divine love. We were created, you were created, to love God, to share in the self-giving love which the Father, Son, and Spirit always enjoy. And though we've rejected that love, Though we've replaced it with a lust for power and for pleasure, God's love does not cease at that point. He is love. Instead, when God is faced with our hatred and our rebellion, when God is confronted with our fear and by our pathetic little will to power, God's love responds by sacrificing. Because the triune God who is love is patient and he's kind. The triune God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The love of the triune God never ends. So that while we were still sinners, God loved us. And loved us by the Father giving us, giving up His only Son. The Son who offers Himself in accordance with the will of the Father that He might reconcile us to the Father and may be brought again by the Spirit into the love and fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so to all who believe, 
belong the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the God who made the world in love, who made you in love, who has forgiven your sin and atoned for your sin in love and for the sake of his love, is and ever shall be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. In just a couple minutes, we're going to do something that Christians do every week, the church does every week. We are going to say what we think reality is. That's what we do when we say a creed. We're going to say, this is what reality is. This is what this world actually is. This is what we believe. We're going to confess and affirm our faith in the only true and living God, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But This is Trinity Sunday, so we have to change things up a little bit. And we're not only going to say, well, we're not going to say the you know, sturdy Nicene Creed. We're going to do another creed called the Athanasian Creed. And it's longer and Let's admit it, it's rather more intense than the Nicene Creed. Now, if you know anything about creeds, the Apostles, the Nicene, the Athanasian, you know that they are Trinitarian. A Christian creed confesses belief in the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Anything less is not Christian. And as we will soon see and say, the most intense part of the Athanasian Creed comes right at the beginning. It says this, Whosoever will be saved, before all things it's necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith? Except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. Sounds pretty intense, right? We believe this, anyone who doesn't will perish everlastingly. That's how the Athanasian Creed starts. And then it says this is the Catholic faith, that we believe in and worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And we're tempted. You're going you're to be tempted when you hear that to feel the burden laying that we talked about at the beginning. Here we're saying, you'd better get this Trinity doctrine straight or you're on the fast track to damnation. But that's not the intention of this creed. We use intense and true language about the Trinitarian nature of God because the doctrine of the Trinity is essential to salvation. And it's essential to salvation because the Trinity is our salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit is our salvation. Because if God is not Father and Son and Holy Spirit, then God is not love. And God did not create from His love and does not intend to draw us up into His love. If God is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then God has not responded to human sin with mercy and salvation because God is not triune. He did not send the Son. The Son did not come to reconcile us to the Father and bring us to Him. The Spirit has not come to testify to the Son and to make us new creations. If God is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you had better snatch up as much power and pleasure as you can, as you can in this blip of a conscious life because pretty soon it's going to end forever and mean nothing. But if God is triune, if God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God eternally existing in a relationship of perfect love, then the world that he has created bears that mark. This world that he has created, he has made for sharing in his divine love. If God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you were created to know and love and share in the perfect communion of divine love. If God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then he has been at work in his world by the incarnation and proclamation of his word, the Son, by the abiding presence of the Spirit in and through the body of his Son, the church. The triune God is working right now 
in and through his church, you and me, this congregation, so that he might draw all people back into that divine love for which he intended us. So because God is triune, because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you can be baptized into his name, and you will become a member of his family. And as a member of his family, you can pray truly to the Father through the intercession of the Son who sends his Spirit into your heart so that you might truly call the Father, not just the Almighty, not just the Creator, but Abba, Father. And because God is triune, because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is reconciling all things to himself until God is all in all. Because God is triune, this life, this world, the reality that we have always and only known, it's not the end, it's only the beginning of our experience and knowledge of the perfect love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to whom belong all honor and all glory, as it was in the beginning, as it is now, and as it ever shall be, world without end. Amen.